Sunday, in case you weren't here, we wrapped up our study of Joseph. We brought it to a close, and, and somebody came up to me after church uh, last Sunday and said, you know, I want to be like Joseph. <laughs> and, and I thought, you know, I do too. And I think all of us would look, and I hope, would, would examine the life and character of Joseph and see so many of those qualities that we observed in him that we would hope to see in our own life as well. Things like his trust in the Lord, his faith, his patience, his humility. But we also have to remember that he didn't just wake up one day and have those qualities, did he? In fact, he went through some pretty difficult times to come to that place of character. Now, we tend to gloss over that fact because we are more inclined to want the character without having to go through the difficult times. But the reality is... They usually cannot be separated. In fact, it reminds me of a passage uh, in Romans that Paul writes when he says this. He says, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character. See, that's what Joseph had. Goes on to say, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. As you think about that, that passage in Romans, I, I think it's not a stretch to, to see how it is lived out in the life of Joseph. He faced his fair share of tribulations, didn't he? And yet he persevered patiently. And during this process, his character was proven. He had a hope that God would fulfill the promises that he made. He he learned to trust in the faithfulness of God. And that's the kind of man that I that I want to be and I hope that that's the kind of person that you want to be as well. Yet at the same time we we have to look at the whole story, don't we, and realize that there's a lot of those not so good character qualities that we saw in Joseph's brothers that we have to work through as well. Because I don't know about you, but like them, I too can be jealous. Like them, I too can be prideful or passive in my faith, and I can look to my own strength instead of trusting in the Lord. But one of the things that I want you to notice as you think back on our study of Joseph is to realize that God pursued both Joseph and his brothers. Just think about that. He pursued both Joseph and and his brothers, because the reason is he didn't want any of them to perish, but he wanted all of them to come to a place of reconciliation through faith and trust in him. And if you think about it, that's the story of the Bible. And God's word is a story of God's redemptive heart seeking to rescue the souls of men and women and not wanting any to perish but all to come to a place of repentance. Or to put it another way, the entire Bible is a message of salvation through faith in God. And everything points to Jesus is the means by which that reconciliation is made possible. In fact, even in our study of Joseph, we see so much of what is fulfilled in the life of Christ being foreshadowed. In fact, I took some time this past week to invite a few people to to look at our 
our, our study of Joseph, just kind of go back on their notes and read through the chapters that we walk through together and to identify with me some of the attributes that they see in the story of Joseph that reminds them or foreshadows the life of Christ. Let, let me give you some of those examples. Like Joseph, Jesus left his home to enter, enter into a land that was not his own. Like Joseph, Jesus was rejected by his own family. Despite their personal integrity, and for Jesus, his complete sinless nature, both Joseph and Jesus were mistreated and wrongly accused of crimes that they didn't commit. Joseph was stripped of his garments, and so was Jesus. They were both punished because of the sins of someone else. But yet, through it all, they both remained faithful to trust in the promises of God and to do the will of the Father. Jesus Christ's heart's desire, like Joseph, was for reconciliation. And so even though he had the power to condemn, he chose instead to give grace. In fact, Jesus even said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus was the one who came. One man, like Joseph, was one man to bring, really, uh, salvation, in a sense, to that world in which he lived. Jesus came to bring salvation to the world from that point on and even before. You see, Joseph gave grain to feed their physical bodies, right? Jesus came as the bread of life so that through him our souls might be saved. Joseph carried out his mission as ruler over Egypt at the right hand of Pharaoh. Jesus Christ is ruler over all the world, seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority, all power and dominion. And the peace we long for is only found when we surrender ourselves to his righteous reign and see him as our Savior and our king. The story of Joseph ultimately is a story of redemption. It's a story that, that is true in history. It, it actually happened. But so much of what we learn in the story of Joseph foreshadows events that will ultimately be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I hope that if you look closely at that story, you see yourself in that story as well. If you would, just kind of think about the life of Joseph's brothers, for example. Like them, we too are guilty. Because Jesus Christ was punished as a result of our sinful decisions. We didn't throw Jesus into a pit like Joseph threw his brother, or Joseph's brothers threw him into a pit. But our sin is the reason that Jesus was nailed to the cross. We are guilty. And there's nothing that we can do to, to remove our guilt. Nothing we can do to earn his forgiveness. We have to come to Jesus just as desperate as Joseph's brothers came to him, knowing that he is the only hope that they have for survival. The same is true for you and I. And when we do, when we find grace, that's when we understand that 
that we live out of gratitude. And, and that evidence is seen in the obedience of our life as we choose to, to walk in the realm of grace under the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. See, when we look at the story of Joseph and his brothers, I hope you see a story of redemption. I hope you see how God transforms the hearts of men and women, families, boys, girls, to the glory of God. And most importantly, I hope you see you. Because that story of redemption is repeated year after year, generation after generation, thousands and thousands of times over. The, the same God who sought to rescue the souls of those men are equally at work in our lives today. And this morning, I want to give you a picture of what that looks like. I've asked two couples to share with you God's story of redemption in their life. And I want you to listen closely because what you're going to hear is the story of Joseph repeated in a modern-day context. God pursuing the souls of men because of his great love and amazing grace. Scott and Krista Patterson and, and Kyle and Laura Bassett are going to speak to you this morning. This, I need to remind you, is not an easy place to stand. <laughs> so give them grace. Give them your attention. And uh, you're going to be blessed by what they have to say. So Kyle and Laura, if you want to come up first. Good morning. My name is Kyle Bassett, and this is my beautiful wife, Laura. I am a Christian, and I am a sinner. For me, admitting this is simultaneously the easiest and hardest part of my daily life as a friend, a son, and a husband. Laura and I are in no way perfect, and though we feel our journey with Christ is on an upswing, and that this testimony can speak to that, our walk with Him is in no way complete. It is our greatest challenge. And our greatest blessing. In terms of the Joseph story, we tend to find ourselves more parallel with the brothers. Anxious for control, paralyzed by fear, and wanting more than anything to be freed in his redemption. Growing up, I was raised Roman Catholic. My parents were and still are some of the most inspirational models of Christianity in my life. My choice to stray from a relationship with God was not a lack of trust in their beliefs, but rather an overabundance of trust in myself and the way I saw the world. The closest thing I had to a religious experience in my youth was when my high school girlfriend of four years broke up with me. For a while, I attended Mass daily, begging and praying for what I needed God to do for me, selfishly neglecting to listen to what other paths God may be clearing for my future. Then, in the summer of 2009... I was arrested and given a DUI for sleeping in my car. I had come to college and my faith was non-existent. I had been informed earlier that day that my grandmother's health was failing, and instead of hitting my knees in prayer, I hit the bar to drown my sorrows. My father has a phrase he saves for situations like these. He calls them come-to-Jesus moments. And yet the only divine intervention I could feel was that of punishment. Then on December 20th, 2009, the first good thing I allowed myself to see entering into my life, walked into a coffee shop I work at and harassed me for not having her favorite tea. (laughs) Three days later on our first date, 
Laura and I talked for the better part of five hours, but the one thing that stood out to me was her faith. When she told me of how she'd lost her father, in the same breath Laura spoke of how she knew he was in a better place, of how her church had rallied behind her and her family, and how she trusted in the Lord's plan, even though that was difficult to do lately. When I told her about my lack of faith, Laura did something I found rather surprising. She let me be me. She was confident in her faith and opinions thereof, and as our relationship progressed and topics of faith arose, I began to notice a lot of my beliefs and doubts were conditional. Laura's were unfaltering. The answer why was simple. Laura trusted God. Kyle is making me sound awfully great right now. (laughs) But let me just say that any difference Kyle saw in my life was because of God and nothing to do with me. As he just said, I refrained from pushing my faith and mostly hoped and occasionally prayed for the best. My reasons for not talking more about my faith were selfish. I was falling in love with Kyle, and I didn't want to make things awkward. I didn't want to risk losing him if I pushed religion too hard. Luckily, there's a powerful God at work who wanted to reach Kyle's heart despite my timidity. And he used some wonderful people along the way. It was a friend who helped me realize the importance of beginning a spiritual dialogue with Kyle. Bruce, <clears throat> excuse me. Bruce Shubiaka was our new youth pastor at the time, and he knew about my relationship with Kyle. Out of love for a fellow believer and a loving concern for Kyle's heart, Bruce challenged me to become certain of Kyle's salvation. It was obvious to Bruce that I was hopeful of a future with Kyle, and so he shared verses in the Bible in which God blueprints marriage in which God is the, or the husband is the spiritual leader of the home. Bruce also talked with me about the wonderful gift of my own salvation and helped me realize that Kyle's salvation was worth any and every moment of awkwardness. Planting a seed in Kyle's heart was even worth losing the relationship if that was what God intended. That night in prayer, I entrusted mine and Kyle's relationship to God for the first time. If I truly loved Kyle, he needed to hear from me about the even greater love of Christ and the wonders of a personal relationship with him. Expressing my faith to Kyle became my mission, and although I should have been professing my faith to him from the beginning, God was ready and willing to use me now. And let me tell you, it was awkward at first, (laughs) just like I feared. Our conversations were long and complicated, and Kyle got to find out just how easily I can cry. (laughs) But oh my goodness, was it rewarding. My faith became stronger daily as I prayed for Kyle's heart, and God taught me to defend my beliefs against another's doubts. Kyle's heart began to change too. Shortly after this, Laura bought me a Bible, and I began attending Melanie Park with Laura and her family. After all, she had gotten me a Bible, and it seemed like the least that I could do. But slowly and surely, God began to open my heart. I began to instigate spiritual conversations with Laura, sometimes out of curiosity, other times as a direct challenge to her faith. But God was ready, and so was Laura. Her faith in God was solid, and in a return, God had prepared her mind and her heart to answer my questions with a steadfastness and humility that I still find intimidating today. Through this process, I never felt judgment. Only sympathy. I lacked an understanding of God's infinite love. As a human flawed in sin, I could not see how A, God could forgive my transgressions, and B, and more foolishly, how I was going to earn his forgiveness. 
at that time of my life being a man meant three things. Sticking to your word, doing right when everyone else did wrong, and working hard even when all you wanted to do was collapse in defeat to feel some sort of relief. And let me be the first to tell you, without God in my life, I was failing at all three. But God did not give up. He never does. And eventually, through reconciliation, I was able to see that God did not keep a record of our wrongs to lord them over us, but rather as tools and examples that we can either choose to embrace or ignore. This cycle of self-loathing was truly broken in January of 2011. I planned on proposing to Laura, and the first person I told in the family was my brother-in-law, Michael Park. His excitement for Laura and I was almost tangible, but he wanted to know one thing. Where did I stand with Christ? I explained to Michael the details of my relatively recent decision to begin walking a path with God, but shared honestly in my fear that I wasn't worthy of his grace. The eloquence of brevity in his words still haunts me today. He simply said, none of us do. And that's what makes it so dang awesome. Reconciling my sin and God's undying faith in me was so liberating that even as a poetry major, I think I will always lack the words to describe it. After we became engaged, Laura and I began to commit our relationship and our future to Christ more seriously, and the rewards we reap came back to us tenfold. The choice to humble ourselves before him came not a moment too soon. In May of that year, I had full reconstructive surgery on my collarbone. After the surgery, I was told I would have to receive sponge baths daily, which is not as fun as it sounds. For six weeks, Laura came over to my apartment, prepared a bath, covered my shoulder with a plastic bag, and would clean a wound I was often too queasy to look at. And every day, I thought of Christ washing the feet of his disciples, and still cannot believe sometimes the physical example of service to others God placed right before my eyes. Later that summer, Laura and I lost a nephew and a grandfather within days of each other. Without the trust we'd built in our relationship with God, we never would have made it. This is not to say that we somehow understand God's plan, rather that we had to remember that we could not that we could not comprehend his magnitude, but that we could find refuge in his infinite wisdom. So as our relationship quickly became more about three beings rather than just the two of us, God began to show us that a fully intimate relationship with him was only possible if you gave God everything. We began to realize more and more more how distracting and hindering our physical intimacy was within our relationship. We wanted our marriage to be Christ-centered, but we knew that we were holding back a huge part of our relationship. But, But God knew our secret, and he could have no part in that aspect of our relationship because he created intimacy to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. And we were knowingly separating ourselves from him in order to satisfy selfish desires of our flesh. We couldn't ignore our convictions any longer, and we decided to end our intimacy until we were married. But we worried that because we'd already committed those sins, that our mistake was final and our relationship was just going to suffer. But God's redemption is glorious. Together, we went to God and gave him that part of our relationship. And because of his infinite and unconditional love, our sins were forgiven. And the cleansing immediately began. It was amazing. It was like our relationship was wiped clean. Our focus was on God. We prayed consistently for protection from temptation, and God provided. 
easy. He too wanted what was best for our relationship and our approaching marriage. At first, we worried that it would seem like now something was missing from our relationship. And again, we were wrong. In fact, our love for each other and for God grew in ways we didn't expect. While physical intimacy was gone, our spiritual and emotional intimacy grew beyond former recognition. We learned to communicate and love each other in a more complete and honest way. Intimacy is very special, and thanks to God's grace, Kyle and I are able to fully understand that special relationship within our marriage. These struggles led Laura and I to a place where we knew we needed and craved the counsel of Christ. When it came time for us to seek premarital counseling, God once again decided to grace us with another amazing gift. We were offered the opportunity to join a small group at the church. The idea being that not only would these people be with us on our journey to marriage, but remain as constants even after the bells had tolled. The love God has poured into our lives from this has been breathtaking. So often were Laura and I consumed with fixing and working on our problems, and here came a group of couples and individuals who reminded us that God is the ultimate mediator. And through unifying our relationship with him, there was nothing we could not face. Christ's power to change a heart is evident in my husband's life. Two years ago, I was happily head over heels falling in love with this wonderful man. But when I thought about our possible future, I was always sad when I thought about how I would be the one teaching our kids about Jesus' love. But here, two years later, Kyle is without a doubt the spiritual leader of our home. (laughs) It's awesome. (laughs) Sorry. He is... (laughs) He isn't perfect, but he strives to lead the two of us by following Christ's example of unconditional love. He leads us. I'm sorry. She wasn't kidding. I do cry easy. Um, He leads us in prayer and a daily devotional. I still remember the first time that he led the two of us in prayer. I was at his house, and I was upset about something, and Kyle just sat down beside me, took my hand, and started to pray. That feeling was incredible. It wasn't even very long after I'd given him his Bible. Um, But knowing that the two of us were standing before our Father together was amazing. Um, The fact that Kyle was entrusting the burdens of my heart to God expressed more love to me than any cards or gifts or acts of service ever could. And because of Kyle's faith, and it's because of Kyle's faith, that our relationship was able to survive the difficulties that we faced last year. His faith was my rock when my own faith began to falter. He reminded me daily that God is involved, he is not cruel, and he reminded me that God's plan is infinite, while our own understanding is finite. The Kyle I knew only two years ago never would have believed nor uttered these truths, and I'm certain we wouldn't be here in this church today. But God changed him, and here we are. Finally, about a month ago, I had the privilege of attending the men's retreat and was able to share a testimony similar to this one. Having to reflect upon all of the ways in which God has worked in my life has been nothing short of astounding. But it also brought me to the realization that there was still much more I could do to honor God and Christ as the leaders of my family. And this story continues to reaffirm, and God keeps delivering. Laura and I have started a daily devotional and challenged one another to pray together and separately. 
And there are days where we forget to read or to challenge. And that's okay. Because I know in my heart that we are trying. And that is what God asks for. So let me make it simple. The freedom Laura and I feel in trusting God will always, always outweigh any worldly burden we may face. preceding a few weeks uh, and even again this morning I think about how I'm not worthy of my own actions, what I've done um, to be married to this woman to, uh, to still have my children and have the opportunity to, to share uh, salvation of Christ with others I, uh, at an early age, when um, most people were making that decision whether or not to follow Christ, I uh, chose not to and become an atheist. Uh, and I went the many, many years after that as a self-serving uh, to do what, what I thought was going to take care of me because there was no one else that was going to take care of me. The world was evil, and uh, I had to protect myself. And I have advocated with a very hard heart. I uh, met Krista in junior high, and we got married um, after having our first child, Caitlin, right out of high school. And it was not a marriage based on Christ. It was a, a marriage based on that's what it, it took to look. Um, look good in front of everybody else. We loved each other, but we weren't getting married with the full intent of, of having a relationship that was going to work. My friend Michael Park, um, I remember this church that many of you know, spent a lot of time sharing the gospel with me. And there were several years that every Saturday night uh, we sat together for hours. Six, seven, eight hours. It got to the point where Krista was getting upset because I was gone every Saturday night. And I got to where I didn't want to go because I knew that he would not let me leave without sharing what Christ was doing in his life. I couldn't talk about enough politics or weather or cars or anything else. And even if he had to catch me as I was getting in the car after six hours of being there, he would do it. And it got to where I just stopped returning the phone call. Stopped choosing to see him. To cut him out of my life. Um. I was in pursuit of money and power 
I was pursued of what my image was to everyone else. And I didn't want accountability. I killed my feelings with drugs and alcohol and became a hardened heart. Chris's stepdad passed away when uh, four years after we were married. And he'd been in a coma for six days. He became a believer two years. Because of two years earlier, his wife had passed away, Krista's mother. She witnessed them their whole marriage. But he didn't want it. And after she passed away, he went into pursuit. And as they removed the uh, breathing tube from his throat, he loved music and he loved classic rock. (laughs) And that was the radio that was on in his ICU room. And as I removed the two, Krista and I and her brother were sitting outside the room. It was too much for us to bear to be in there. And mercy me's, I can only imagine, came on the radio. song by World Sanders didn't belong on that radio station. And no one touched the radio. And the volume just got loud. (laughs) It became too strong for me to accept I actually had to step out in the hallway. It was that point in time that everything I'd ever heard about the gospel rang true to me. Michael had asked me one time before we had stopped talking. He said, what can I say to make you believe? And I said, there's nothing. I said, I don't know the whole Bible, but I do know the story. And I said, whatever it takes is between me and God. I didn't know how true that was. People ask me, well, what happened? I don't know. But God knows. I use that as a something else as a 
to praise me by, that, uh, that there was an everlasting life, that, that there was a life after this, there was hope. But I was still going to continue on choosing the lifestyle that I had had. had. I was going to put wealth and drugs and alcohol and selfishness above everybody else, and I was not going to attend church. I was not going to spread the salvation that I had. It was, I can have a good time here, and then when I die, I get to go to heaven and have a good time. Without having Christ as the center of our our marriage, our marriage deteriorated. In December of 2010, we had lived several years at that point in time of isolating ourselves from everybody, spending ourselves into a very large amount of debt from drugs and alcohol, not working, um, destroying every relationship, neglecting our children. Creating fears and insecurities in them that I alone should never be forgiven for. And Krista reached out to someone. Said she wanted help. And that lady called me and asked me if what Krista said was true. And I said, yes. The only people that knew where we were at were the two of us and the people that were enabling us to be there. There was no accountability. And that was the first time that somebody had put accountability on me. And she asked what kind of father I had been. I told her I would quit everything then. She said, you can't do it. I said, I will for my kids. And Krista wanted to quit as well. Six months rolled by. We had, within a month after making that decision, started attending Oakwood. Looking for something to fill the void. Drugs and alcohol were no longer there and we were unhappy. The more I went, the the more I saw what a, a Christ like life was. And I said that's what good people do, that's what I wanna do. I want I wanna pick up trash and I wanna donate money and I want to go around and give people Bibles and I want to be a missionary, and I need to go to Africa because that's where that's where the sinners are is in Africa. <laughs> and um, there was four times that uh, I chose to use drugs from that December to that next May. 
And when the fifth time presented its opportunity, I was finally to a point where I could say no. And I did chose to say no. And that, that, that put a big wedge in between the two of us. There, there was no one that knew what we were doing. There was no one knew that life, the lifestyle that we had, and we were just, we wanted to keep that image, to look good in front of everybody, and to keep it a big secret. And we still had each other to talk to, but at the time that I said, I don't want it anymore, then it just ended all communication between us. And Krista was still struggling, and she had no one to reach out to. And I knew she was struggling, but I didn't feel strong enough. And I chose not to reach out because I didn't want to fall. I wanted to fix all the wrong things I had destroyed in my life. And the more I went and looked at it and evaluated it, the longer the list got. And it got to the point that there, there was no way I could fix it all. I wanted, Krista was struggling, and I I quickly forgot when I was struggling. And it was time to get as far away from her, because I couldn't create any more sins, because I couldn't take care of all the sins I'd already done. So I filed for divorce, and I moved out. That was the final wedge to end any communication. I wanted to to have custody of the kids because I was the better Christian. I was the one that could could raise them better. Krista wanted them because she loved them more. I felt very passionate about what I was doing. I looked at what life was going to be like, which is me and the kids. And I was surrounded by people that were reassuring about what I was doing. And that, yes, that was going to make me a better Christian and a better missionary. And I eventually uh, got down to a point that I realized that no matter who got the kids, what happened that that nobody was going to win, that we were all losers and it was going to be broken forever. And I got a text message from somebody saying that they had left me a voicemail a few weeks earlier. And uh, they were still interested in having lunch. And I probably had 30 unchecked voicemails because I had checked out of life. So I started going through voicemails until I found this voicemail of the guy across the alley. Who I had said, hi, how are you doing, to in the two years that I had known him. 
and he wanted to have lunch with me. And I didn't check the voicemail, and I didn't respond. And he reached out again. I, I couldn't imagine myself reaching out to somebody and then being pushed away and to reach out again. I wouldn't do that for my own family. Why would I do it for a complete stranger? And I had a a four-hour-long breakfast with Russell Thomason. And we started that breakfast with just what I was doing. And how he had grown to care about my children, coming across the alley to play with his children. And he had heard that we were, had filed for divorce, and he wanted to know why. I told him about all the bad things I had done. I told him even more about the bad things that Krista had done. <laughs> and how, uh, how that was going to help our family, and I was going to be a better, uh, better Christian in my uh, big aspirations to be a missionary in Africa and uh, he asked me why can't your wife be your mission I said because uh, one of three things will happen if I go back the least worth thing that can happen is I'll lose my kids. The second worst thing is I can lose my kids and I can end up in jail. And the, the most worst thing is I can lose my life. And he said, do you think God wants you to get a divorce? And I said, well, he wants me to be happy. He asked me where, where it said that I was had a promise happiness. And he asked me, uh, we talked about my faith and what I put my faith in. And he goes, uh, are you going to let your fears keeping you from doing what God has planned for you to do? And that was a lot to stomach. But I decided that I would give it a try. And he wanted me to, uh, he said, what are you going to do about the attorney? And I was like, well, you know, I'll, I'll try it for a few days, so there's no sense in calling the attorney. And uh, he said, are you really putting your whole heart into it if you <laughs> still have a retainer down? And uh, I said, well, I'll, I'll tell her to halt everything. And he said, you know, so you have one leg in instead of a foot. And uh, I said, I'll just see. And I left there and I went to work. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that that was my mission. And Krista called me at that around lunchtime to talk about what was going to happen with the kids. 
and I uh, I could feel the the tension, the aggressiveness in her voice because we're in the middle of a divorce, and I didn't tell her who I'd talked to or I wanted to talk to her that evening, and um, that evening when I dropped the kids off, I told her that I had had breakfast with the crazy guy across the alley, and uh, she was kind of shocked, and uh, I told her that I wanted to halt the divorce, because that's what God had called me to do, and she looked at me like I was the crazy one, and uh, then I chose, I said, okay, well, I'm going to go back to work now, and I went to work, and uh, Russell texted me, and he goes, um, did you tell her? And I said, yes. And he goes, uh, we should have dinner sometime. And I said, sounds good. And we're text messaging. And he goes, how about tonight? <laughs> <laughs> oh. So we went and uh, I text Krista back and asked if she wanted to have dinner with people across the alley. <laughs> and uh, that was awkward. And... Two weeks after that, or a few weeks after that, we started the Dave Ramsey financial piece. And a week or so after that, I moved back in. And it was, there was a lot of hurt. There was a lot of resentment and anger. There was a lot of pointing at each other, not pointing at each other physically, but definitely mentally. We were not willing to open up to each other, but we knew that this was God's will. And that we needed to put our differences aside and put God first. And it's a new day every day. It's an opportunity to serve God. And it is a blessing. It is by God's grace that we still have our kids and that we still have each other. Because it was very close and I haven't any of us. And I know I'm definitely undeserving, and I'm definitely blessed to still be be able to stand here today with her. Our um, marriage, like you said, was not based on um, God, and it didn't have any hope. I can remember after Scott had filed for divorce, Celeste, his mother, um, coming to me and just looking at me and with doubt. And she's like, I really think it's over this time. There's no way he's, he's uh, going to change his mind. And I knew it was the truth. I knew it was over. And if it wasn't for... God and the people that he put in our lives, we would not be here today. Through our marriage, we have been able to work on forgiving each other only because we were forgiven. Our children are now learning out, learning about this amazing man that they had no clue who he was before two years ago 
They get a father that leads his family in prayer, a father that not only takes care of them physically, but takes care of them by teaching them spiritually. And I've learned to put my trust in God and to let Scott lead. And if anybody that knows me, I'm the leader. So that uh, that is something that I'm, I am learning. And it is it's a daily walk, but without... Without God in our marriage, without God in our lives, there was no hope. And he is the only reason there's hope. I told these guys when we visited beforehand, I said, I try not to take offense to this, but consistently... We can go through an entire series where I labor each week on the message that I give. And at the end, we do a testimony like this, and people routinely will say to me, that was the best Sunday ever. (laughs) But I can't argue to hear from the lives of people. And one of the things that I would ask of you, because you heard their stories, and you know by virtue of the stories that they told you that they're beginning this journey. They're new and early in this process of walking with Christ. And they're telling you as a body of believers, and in doing so, they're entrusting their hearts to you to say, will you walk with me? Will you be the brother and sister in Christ that we all need to stand strong together in the faith that we've committed ourselves to in Jesus Christ? So um, you've heard the testimony of Scott and Krista and Kyle and Laura, and I I had a chance to visit with them even more one-on-one and to know how they have each come to a place where they have put their faith and trust in Christ. And one of the beautiful things that we get to do today as an exclamation point is to celebrate um, uh, Scott's decision to follow the Lord in baptism because of that uh, testimony of faith that he has. So as we get ready for that, I'm going to ask Bill Hamilton to come up and uh, lead us in a time of prayer before the offering, and then uh, we'll celebrate in baptism together. <laughs> 